0: In northwest Africa, the vast wilderness of the Sahara Desert runs into the tropical rainforests of Benin and Burkina Faso. And it's in this region that some of Africa's greatest empires flourished. Among them were the Songhai Empire, as well as the earlier Mali Empire, whose rulers included Mansa Musa, who, flushed with gold, was reportedly the wealthiest man in history. By the early 19th century, the Bambara Empire controlled much of this territory, which is in today's Mali. But from the southwest, a new force emerged, a man named Ahmad Lobu, who forged not just a new empire, but what came to be known as the Caliphate of Hamdullahi. An Islamic and jihadist state, it was one of the last powerful empires in this region before the scramble for Africa began in 1881 and saw almost the entire continent fall under colonial European rule. It's an area of the world and an era of history that is often overlooked in the West. But Professor Mauro Nabili, author of Sultan, Caliph and the Renewer of the Faith, Ahmad Lobo, the Tarik al-Fatash and the making of an Islamic State in 19th century West Africa, is a subject matter expert on this period of history. I recently spoke to him about the caliphate and began by picking up from our discussion in a previous episode about the Songhai Empire. The Songhai Empire collapsed due to infighting and eventually the area was conquered by Morocco. But 200 years later, what was the situation in the area where Songhai fell and suddenly this caliphate of Hamdalahi arose? So let's say
1: that after the fall of the Songhai, the Moroccans established a very uh, loose control over the Niger band. And the more you would go basically upstream the Niger, the least consolidated was this control, especially after eventually the fading away of any direct uh, control of Morocco over these kind of uh, sub-Saharan colonies, in quotes, in quotes. Uh, in fact, what happened is that uh, the Niger band became uh, characterized by the presence of several uh, almost city-states, like, you know, Timbuktu, Gen And you will have like an aristocracy of descendants of Moroccan uh, soldiers who mixed up with local women. But in fact, uh, the rural areas around these cities uh, was completely outside the control uh, of the, uh, the garrison, the former Moroccan garrisons in these cities. So what happens at the time is that you will have uh, by the um, 18th century and at the very beginning of the 19th century the consolidation of a sort of indirect control of the uh, Bamana. Kingdom of Segou over the region, uh, let's say between Jenne and Timbuktu, where eventually the Caliphate will uh, flourish. That was not a direct uh, control, uh, but was uh, a control that was exercised mostly through the medium of some uh, nomadic Fulani herdsmen, uh, especially military elites, who would basically manage to uh, uh, tax on behalf uh, of the Bamana kings of Segou the local people. Uh, they were also often joining forces uh, with the uh, military excursions of the uh, Bamana rulers. So this is this kind of the context uh, out of which Amdallahi will emerge. So some cities uh, controlled by a mix uh, of armagh, which are the names uh, by which the descendants of the Moroccan were well known, uh, and these local elites, uh, as well as this indirect control of the Mamana through the medium of the Fulani elites.
0: I've seen the Burmana Empire described as a pagan nation, that among other things enslaved the Fulani people. Given that it occupied an area that had been nominally Muslim under the Songhai, were the Bumana people who had turned their backs on Islam, or were they people who'd never been Muslims at all? And with regard to slavery, which was apparently common there, were they keeping people as slaves of their own? Or were they involved in the transatlantic slave trade?
1: The two questions go actually, at uh, I think, at the core uh, of how we conceptualized uh, you know, the Bamana kingdom of Segou Because uh, we can describe these kind of states, uh, and I'm starting from your second question, uh, uh, following uh, Richard Roberts, uh, who describes uh, these states that emerged uh, at the time of the peak of the Atlantic slave trade as warrior states. So these were states... Uh, was uh, subsistence economy. Sorry, always economy was mostly based uh, on the enslaving of people uh, and the selling of people, uh, especially you know to the Atlantic, so the European traders on the Atlantic, but also using uh, many of these peoples, uh, for instance, to uh, increase the numbers of slave soldiers. In fact, uh, one of the dynasties, uh, the second dynasty of the Bamana Empire, the Charra dynasty, kind of stands out of a sort of a an elite corp of slaves. So slavery was a major component uh, for the Bamana kingdom. uh, And definitely um, people from among the Fulani or generally speaking, uh, people living in the areas that would become the areas of Amdallahi were uh, targeted by the uh, slave rights of the Bamana of Syri. Now, whether Muslims or not, uh, is a little bit more of a complex uh, issue because uh, we tend to always think uh, The Songhai Empire, they were all Muslims. The the time of Hamdallah, they were all Muslims. The Bamana were, on the contrary, all uh, non Muslims. Of course, there is an overlapping uh, of different religious traditions within these states. So, what I would say is that definitely from among the subjects of the Bamana kingdom, there were a lot of Muslims. Muslims playing actually also very influential roles uh, within. the kingdoms, economic, uh, intellectual, uh, in terms of like you know, advisors to the rulers, etc. For instance, there is uh, the founder of the uh, second dynasty, the Jarra dynasty of Segugu. Tradition record that uh, the first of these Jarra was Ungolo Jarra was in fact. Uh, trained uh, by some uh, influential Muslim intellectuals in Timbuktu. And it seems like some of the influential scholars from Timbuktu were playing the role as advisors to some of these uh, kings of Segu. But I would say the pagan, uh, in quotes, uh, uh, feeling that we have when we read about the kingdom of Segu is because uh, Islam did not play a major role in legitimizing uh, the authority of the rulers of Segu. So we can say that these uh, were states, the one of segu for instance, in which Islam was present, but was not basically one of the idiom of political culture, which, on the contrary, will become a, a crucial feature of the life.
0: The religious scholars in Timbuktu, during the Songhai Empire, stayed out of politics. But this separation of religion and state changed with Ahmed Lobu, Was this inspired by the religious movements further south that had seen clerics become powerful political figures?
1: Yeah, I would say yes. So there has been this historiographical tendency to see this wave of Islamic revolutions, by which I mean revolutions that were led by Muslim clerics, that led eventually to the establishment of theocracies, the states run by Muslim clerics, that actually starts, according to this narrative, in the Western Sahara in the late 1600s, uh, then eventually kind of spills into the Senegambian region in the Futa Jalon, especially as reaction to the intensification of the, the enslavement of Muslims in the area of the Senegambia. But then eventually the more direct connection with the case of Amdalai is for sure the movement that is led by Osman Fodio at the beginning of the 19th century that led to the establishment of the so-called Caliphate. This influence was definitely present uh, at the point that we have also um, information in primary sources about uh, uh, scholars uh, that uh, moved uh, from Sokoto into the area that eventually would become uh, the area of Andalai to spread the, the new religious message, revolutionary message of Usman danfodi kind of broke that political neutrality of Muslim clerics. This is definitely the case. And we also know, for instance, that Ahmed Lobo, that is the ruler that eventually established Kelly Pedro Hamdallah, uh, also requested uh, uh, legitimation for his movement to Usman Danfodio at the beginning uh, of, you know, is basically uh, the moment in which his movement became militarized. The issue here is that uh, the uh, outcome of these movements uh, in terms of uh, discourses uh, was very similar. Both the rulers. Uh, of Futajalon, of Futa, Jalon, of Futa Toro in Senegambia, of uh, Sokoto and Hamdallai will use uh, the uh, language of jihad you know, to justify these you know, revolutions. Uh, but in fact, uh, there is also the risk uh, by uh, overemphasizing the language that is used uh, to think that all of these movements were in fact the same thing. Well, in fact, they were not. But they were movements that were definitely inspired by this possibility of seeing uh, clerics uh, directly involved in politics uh, and justifying this direct involvement that was extremely revolutionary through the language of jihad. But in fact, we need to understand uh, the local roots of these movements, uh, which is what, in fact, make all of these uh, movements uh, very different among themselves. So, so different from Amdallai, from Futa Toro, from Futa etc. et cetera.
0: Mali traditionally is associated with Sufi Islam, while further south you had Sunni Muslims. Given that both Hamdullahi and the Southern jihadist movements were particularly strict theologically, was there any tension between these neighboring states around their contrasting interpretations of Islam? That is also a very interesting question because, um, in fact, you know the
1: Sunni. Especially in, from a, um, a jurisprudential point of view, the Maliki tradition and the Sufi tradition of these regions is very similar between Sokoto, Abdallahi, and even the regions that you're referring to that are basically south uh, of what is today's Mali into Ivory Coast, Ghana, Burkina Faso, that uh, were characterized by the presence uh, of Muslims, especially along the trading routes. The Muslim orientation was very similar among all of these uh, uh, different Muslim communities. What was substantially different was uh, exactly the relationship uh, with the idea of waging war. Muslims living along the trading routes, uh, mostly in uh, regions that were dominated by non-Muslims, have been traditionally identified with the so-called the Suwarian tradition. This is the, the term that is often referred to, and um, deals that connects this tradition to a, a Muslim scholar who lived sometimes in the late Middle Ages, Elajis Harim Suare, eh? and who was also the beginner of this uh, diaspora of Muslim uh, traders. Uh, always, in a way, preached uh, a rationale of coexistence of Muslims with their non-Muslim rulers uh, that was based, uh, I would say, on pragmatism. In context in which the Muslims play, uh, um, you know, a minority occupy a minority position, so there is no actual way in which Muslim can become the most dominant political factor of the region. The only way in which you can actually prosper is by abandoning uh, the idea of monopolizing the political culture so maintaining and reproducing in a way that position of political neutrality that we have seen also characteristic of previous eras in different parts of west africa and it's interesting you mentioned the tension there is indeed circulation of ideas about the possibility of waging war against non-muslim or against muslims that in fact kind of support different understanding of the religion, which is, in fact, the case of most of the Islamic revolution. They're not waging non-Muslims, but I mean, Muslims so whose interpretation is different uh, than the one that, you know, uh, was uh, practiced and uh, advanced by the leaders of such revolution. So there's always been this kind of tension between uh, waves of revolution that are going around and the need of maintaining this kind of pragmatic position of marginality. So that's definitely what's happening uh, in the area south of Alhamdulillah, if you want to speak to Alhamdulillah
0: here. Yeah. When Ahmed Lobu established the caliphate, he brought in a lot of restrictions on things like dancing, smoking, drinking. Was this controversial or were the Muslims there already ascetics and he was just kind of reinforcing the established norms? Well, I would
1: say that uh, this kind of... a uh, austere measures that were, in a way, enforced uh, by Amdalahi might have been already, in fact, uh, accepted by some, you know, segments of the population. Uh. The major issue that uh, was more con- contested, I mean, it's not really alcohol, so or Muslims agree, you know, despite the fact that many Muslims do drink, agree that alcohol is, uh, you know, is, is haram, is illegitimate. The issue in the context is especially that of tobacco. So tobacco is present everywhere after its appearance at the very beginning of you know I mean after it spread at the very beginning of the 1600s, even in the archaeological records. I think that one of the most obvious uh, um, you know artifact that you will find all over West Africa in the archaeological record post 1600 is the little uh, clay pipe that demonstrates the ubiquity of you know tobacco consumption. But in general, there has always been a debate among Muslims whether or not consumption of tobacco either smoked or chewed, actually, and sniffed most of the time. More than smoking, it was chewing and sniffing at the time, uh, except for the one in the, in the little pipes. Um, so the, pre- the emergence of tobacco uh, generated a big debate among scholars about uh, uh, whether or not it was uh, you know, a substance that could be consumed by Muslims. And the debate has become open throughout Islamic history. While on the contrary, Abdullahi is particularly strict in uh, enforcing uh, you know, the ban on tobacco. At the point that there are some Arabic letters from, uh, from Timbuktu that sh- really demonstrate how harsh was the uh, repression of tobacco smoking. Uh, um, there is this letter, I remember very well. There is a scholar from Timbuktu who is complaining with, uh, uh, I don't remember which of the three rulers of Abdullahi. Uh, but the fact that he, uh, the police, basically, that was sent by Amdala in Tomboktu was opening the mouth of people to inspect if they could find, you know, <laughs> remnants uh, of tobacco. And we also need to understand that tobacco was also a very important uh, trans-Saharan commodity. So I would say that without, uh, of course, reducing all of these religious debates uh, uh, to economics, uh, I think... Uh, uh, imposing uh, control over tobacco was also a way for Hamdallah to, to assert power over powerful uh, merchants, families uh, that control basically this, uh, this trade. But the issue of tobacco is actually very fascinating.
0: <laughs> That's funny. So he also decreed that the Grand Mosque in Jena was too fancy and wanted to utilise a more humble, functional kind of site. Was that controversial? I'm just thinking in terms of, say catholicism if the pope suddenly decided st peter's was too grand while well, people might agree on religious grounds because of its history and status i don't imagine they'd be too happy about abandoning it it's also a good question that is slightly different difficult to answer
1: for the simple reason that um, we know a lot about the history of Andalai from the point of view of, you know, the rulers and of the administration. But with the exception of the case of Timbuktu, that I tend to know quite well, we have very little uh, sources that testify how people lived under Andalai, for instance, in Jenne, I don't know if it's because the Jenne archives have not been mined, you know, for uh, letters and stuff like that. So maybe in the future we do know, we will know more about that. But uh, there's a little bit... Uh, of a tricky uh, issue here, especially in relationship with the Jeme Mosque. So it is clear actually from one of the very early writings of Ahmed Lobo that predates him becoming the ruler of Amdullah, in which he clearly attacks the archi- architectural feature of the mosque as being contrary to some kind of interpretation of hadith of the Prophet. So there's an interpretation of some of these narratives related to the Prophet's saying and deeds that. Uh, uh, Ahmed Lobo uses to say that basically the material and the proportion of the mosque were not, uh, you know, according to the Sun, according to his interpretation. The issues that, uh, uh, contrary to what you would read, especially you know, in like colonial sources, but sometimes actually contemporary narratives, Ahmed Lobo did not destroy the main mosque of Jenne. As we know very well, these uh, Sahelian mosques are built out of mud. So the mosque require annual, uh, uh, kind of works of uh, restoration so what ahmed lobo prescribed uh, was uh, the uh, ban on uh, the restoration of the mosque and the building of a new mosque so what happened in fact is that all the old mosque went in decline because it was not restored anymore and the new one was built but the interesting thing and this goes back actually to the cover page of my uh, of my book sultan caliph the renewer of the faith but that's how the mosque, uh, on the cover page of that book, you'll have how the mosque looked like when the French arrived in Jenne. So completely basically destroyed, Look, looks almost like, uh, uh, you know, months more than actually a mosque. But uh, since the French recognizing it, the older mosque that have been described, you know, the Chronicles of Timbuktu, et etc., et and of course, local traditions, so they rebuilt uh, the mosque on the older site. So what we actually have at the time of Amnala is not the destruction of the old mosque, but the fall out of use of okay. the Grand Mosque of Genna, which is kind of interesting for me because when uh, people always think about uh, the traditional, uh, you know, the old mosque of West Africa, they always think about uh, the Genna mosque, which in fact was rebuilt by the French. Yeah.
0: So looking back, people tend to justify Lobu's actions by drawing on the famous chronicle, the Tariq al-Fatash. But in your book, you've stated the chronicle as we know it isn't as old as it appears. And in fact, it was altered after the fact to justify Lobu's actions after they had occurred.
1: Yeah, definitely. Contrary to, let me give a little bit of background. Contrary to what people often believed, meaning that the Tariq al-Battash was a chronicle originally written in the 1500s and then updated in the 1600s and then slightly modified in the 19th century. Uh, my main argument is that the Tariq al-Battash was completely, we need to understand it, a completely new chronicle of the 19th century. Because it was written in response to the challenges, to the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobo after the establishment of Amdalai, as correctly you point out. But what I always uh, underline uh, when I make my argument, uh, not the entire chronicle was written from scratch in the 19th century by this close counselor of Ahmed Lobo's name was Noor Ibn Tayr. He used a pre-existing chronicle from the region uh, that was uh, substantially reshaped, uh, not in terms of quantity. I mean, I haven't made like some kind of calculation, but I would say that possibly... 70% of the two chronicles is exactly the same, but uh, the ingenuity of this transformation and the key passages and the rhetorical structure of the chronicle makes the Tarif al-Fatash a genuine in 19th century chronicle. Now, when the chronicle uh, emerges in the landscape of Amdala, it's a little bit more complicated, because uh, Amdala is resisted in its authority from within and from the outside, from the very beginning. In other words, Ahmed Lobo reaches power after a coup. And it is resisted by the old elites, both military and scholarly. Then it would be resisted by some of the powerful clerical lineages, especially in the region of Timbuktu, or would actually be very, you know, available in accepting the political authority of Hamdallah, especially because Hamdallah fixed that kind of chaos that we described at the beginning of the interview. So having a stable state allowed commerce to thrive. But what these scholarly lineages, I'm talking specifically about the Kunta, is a famous scholar, the family of Timbuktu, they were not ready to give up their own uh, role as ultimate religious authority in the region. So the last word should be with them, which of course uh, conflicted with the idea of Ahmed Lobo of being at the same time uh, the ruler as well as the ultimate polit- religious authority in the region. But also, going back to the connection with Sokoto, we also have external uh, Tension uh, between uh, the leaders of Sokoto, who kind of hoped that Amdalai could become a sort of a vassal state of Sokoto, which didn't happen. Ahmed Lobo became ruler basically alone with the state that claimed independence, total independence from, uh, from Sokoto. And then we also know that, uh, especially Saharan so called white, uh, by white and translate, you know, the local term Bidan, uh, that were basically people claiming Arab and Berber uh, origins, uh, were also at times contesting the legitimacy of Fulani uh, theocracies in the Middle Niger, you know, such as Underline. So there's multiple moments in time in which the Tariq al fatash might have come very handy. Strange enough, uh, this is surprising for me as well, uh, I have no trace uh, of the Tariq al-Patash until the very end uh, of the life of Ahmed Lobo. So we can date basically... The first references to the Fatash uh, to the late uh, 1830s, early 1840s, let's keep in mind that Lobo dies in 45, 1845, because uh, we have evidences of the Fatash in responses against the Fatasha by some of the intellectuals of Sokoto. So my argument uh, in, in the book is that it will have been unlikely that the Chronicle had been produced earlier on uh, and left no trace. So it is such a good story to be used, uh, to keep it for like 20 years, and then just uh, using it at the end of the life of Ahmed Longbrook. And also that historical time, uh, in a way it makes sense that the chronicle started being circulated at that time, because uh, this is the time when we are the third generation of rulers in Sokoto, who start basically reopening the quarrels with Amdallahi, after between the second generation that of the rulers of Sokoto was kind of coeval with Ahmed Lobo, so they settled their dispute. So there remained some kind of enmity, but independence of Andalah is kind of, uh, you know, settled. That's 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 a fact. While these third generation rulers, both in Sokoto and Gwandu, that is, was the two basically capital of the Sokoto caliphate, uh, they started again quarreling with Ahmed Lobo. And there's also very funny letters, in fact, uh, uh, very heated uh, letters uh, ex- uh, exchanged between the, in, between the two. And the, the impression that they have from these letters is that uh, basically Ahmed Lobbo is saying, is that again an issue? This is, are we really talking again about that? Okay, here we go. Now this is the final proof. Uh, uh, of my, you know, legitimacy. And of course, this is a way of trivializing a little bit of a more complex story. You know, I don't want to exclude, I mean, of course, uh, that, for instance, the chronicle, uh, the legitimacy of the chronicle is based uh, on a prophecy. And, you know, we know very well that dreams, prophecies were uh, part of the daily life uh, of people at the time. So maybe the claims in the Tanik al Fatash were not as absurd as they might look like to a contemporary observer, But I think that, in a way, the fact of a forgery is kind of clear in the history of the Fatash. And I also can see that uh, the Tariq al Fatash might have played uh, an important role at the time in which uh, the relationship with Sokoto might might have been falling apart once again. By the way, the leaders of Sokoto did not buy the story of the Fatash, and they rejected categorically in another fantastic letter uh, that is written by this scholar uh, called Abdul Qadir Dan Tafa who does not uh, refute the arguments of the Fatasha uh, as like a, mod- a modern, for instance, historian would, uh, he picks on wrong citations. Say, you know, you are actually quoting uh, this famous Egyptian scholar Assoyuti, who might have said this, this and that. But Assoyuti, in these books, he deals with this topic, He says something else, which means that you basically, you're wrong. So it's fantastic the way the refutation of the argument takes place, yeah.
0: The caliphate eventually collapsed, when it was invaded by forces of Muratal. Tal. But he, like Lobu, was a Fulani and a Muslim. So was his aim simply to expand his own empire, even if it meant trampling on others of his ethnicity and religion? Or was there religious motivation with him perhaps disagreeing with how the caliphate operated?
1: I think the story of Al is more complex from a theological point of view, because there is a, the emergence uh, of a new exclusive, uh, exclusivist uh, Muslim brotherhood, a tariqa, Sufi brotherhood, a Sufi order, uh, that is the Tijania, that becomes uh, the crucial theological uh, difference between. Uh, the uh, Fulani of Alhamdulillahi and the Fulani of Elijah Omar. Uh, so the affiliation to the Tijaniya becomes uh, a crucial uh, element uh, in the ideology of Elijah uh, Omar Ta'ala. So in a way, the Muslims who were not uh, Tijani almost lost their uh, legitimacy as Muslims themselves. And again, here is also the issues are uh, way more complicated because uh, we have within Alhamdulillahi uh, a substantial decline uh, of the uh, role uh, of learning and is- Islamic scholarship uh, with uh, the three generations uh, of rulers. Uh, so at the time in which uh, uh, Elijah Umar Omar enters uh, the scene of the Middle Niger, uh, the ruler of Amdala is the grandson of Ahmed Lobo, Ahmed uh, the Third, because uh, they're all called Ahmed, Ahmed the Third, who is basically is a young, is a very young guy. He's like in early twenty, I think. I might be wrong, but. He's also taken distance from the older scholarly elite. It was basically the close companions of his grandfather and also the people who kind of tutored and mentored his father. So there is also now discontent among the early supporters of you know, Ahmed Lobo. And many people, in fact, realigned with Tijaniyyah, possibly because they saw in the Tijania, in a way, the original spirit in the movement of a, Omar Tal, the original spirit of the message of religious reform. So we have from within the uh, the people of Amdallah a lot of supporters of Omar Tal's uh, cause. So here yeah, there's an issue of a decline of a specific political and religious project, the emergence of a new political and religious uh, project. Uh, so the situation is complicated
0: from a social, from a
1: political, but also from a
0: theological point of view. So my last question to you relates to colonialism. In the West, we really hear very little about Hamdullahi and the other great empires like the Mali and the Songhai empires. At the time of the Hamdullahi Empire, though, in the 19th century, was the caliphate in contact with Europe? I mean, did they have trade or interactions with the outside world? Or was it just in such a remote area that people, say, in France and Britain, were really not aware of his? Existence.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, and actually, it goes in the direction of the book that I'm writing right now. So we're moving from an older uh, book on the Tariq al fatash to a newer one that deals, in fact, with the consequences uh, of uh, the trip in Timbuktu at the time when Timbuktu was part of Amadoulaye of a German traveler Heinrich Barth was hosted by one of these Kunta scholars, uh, the Kunta scholarly lineage uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, and the quarrels uh, that uh, emerged between uh, Ahmed the Third and, and this, this Kunta scholar Ahmed al-Bakai, because this is a time in which uh, the Middle Niger, despite being still very far away from the coast uh, or from the areas of direct influence of Europeans, uh, was located... Uh, in a region that was uh, filling the echoes of the French trying to penetrate the Senegal uh, valley. And in fact, uh, uh, it is was the French who act, is the first European who passes through Amdalaise, René Cahier, who arrives in the book two in the second half of the 20s. So then we have uh, roughly at the same time, I think in 1826, we have uh, a Scottish man, uh, Gordon Lane, who comes through the Tripoli route across the desert in Timbuktu and who dies. And then eventually we have this German traveller, Erich Barth. And Erich Barth arrived at the time of very, very big tension in the region because uh, uh, Amdalai was connected to the trans-Saharan trade through cities like Timbuktu. And at the time, we have the French who are now deep into the Saharan uh, Algerian Sahara. The people in the region are actually very concerned about uh, European activities. And the nice story that actually uh, unravels with the uh, arrival of barth is that this scholar in tombbukctu realizes that this uh, traveler uh, barth uh, arrives with opportunities of trading with the british the British at the time they are not uh, yet uh, contrary to the French attempting any kind of direct control of territories uh, they are advancing their policy of you know the imperialism of free trade so this scholar in tombbukctu realizes uh, that the opportunities offered by this German are first, uh, to try to secure the British support against the French, I'm going to guarantee for you that this region can trade with you guys as long as you protect us from the British. And at the same time, is also not in fact ruler of the city. The City is nominally under the control of Hamdallah, and is using the presence of these uh, German travelers who fell on behalf of the British to actually assert his own authority, because the ruler, the third ruler of Hamdallah. Wants Bart and his belongings to be delivered to him in the capital. We don't know what would have happened to Bart, but this scholar, in fact, uh, uses Bart to demonstrate that he's the person in charge of the I'm protecting him and uh, I demonstrate to you that I can send away your troops that came here. It's a very fascinating story of distant echoes of European, you know, imperialism that can be actually seen from a very local perspective. So Andalahi was uh, involved in this. Uh, you know, increased European influence, of course, well before actual colonial consolidated, but in a very distant way that allows, in fact, uh, European actors to be manipulated in a very fascinating way. It's a nice way of really de uh, you know, European uh, history and see these stories of 19th century, not from a European perspective, but from
0: a West African perspective. Thanks so much. It's a really fascinating subject.